Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 29, Anna Kirkland, The Vaccine Court. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Anna Kirkland. Anna is Associate Professor of Women's Studies and Political Science at the University of Michigan. Anna's research is primarily situated in the law and society tradition, and her work has focused on interactions between identity, discrimination, and health. Our podcast today features Anna's new book entitled Vaccine Court, The Law and Politics of Injury, which was published by NYU Press in December 2016. As its name suggests, the book provides a comprehensive, in-depth look at the vaccine court, a curious and rather anomalous administrative alternative to traditional tort litigation. Anna traces the origins of the court in the 1980s, covers its handling of the recent controversy over autism and vaccines, and considers how the vaccine court fits into our overall system for injury compensation. All the while, the book doesn't flinch from the difficult scientific proof and policy questions involved in vaccine court disputes. What counts as good evidence in these proceedings? How should the court handle hard cases? And most fundamentally, has the vaccine court succeeded in its mission? Anna, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thanks so much. So the vaccine court is something of an obscure topic, but one that I think insiders have long thought rather fascinating as a mechanism for alternatives to tort law. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you started or interested in the vaccine court and why you decided to write a book on it? Well, I was reading their judgments in the omnibus autism proceedings that came out, and those hit the mainstream news, which is where I saw them, I think around starting in 2009 or so. And I had never heard of this vaccine court, but it was really fascinating. And so I went to their website and started downloading all the opinions from that, and they're hundreds of pages long. And of course, they posted everything publicly about that trial, which was unusual. Usually because of the medical records involved, everything is closed to the public, but they had put the omnibus autism proceedings entirely online. So there's 5,000 pages of transcripts and hundreds of pages of documents, and you can listen to all of the audio files. So I started doing all this just out of interest. And then I realized if I'm going to spend this kind of time on this, then this has to be my next book project. And I was looking for a project because I had just gotten tenure and you know, I needed a, another big project. So I really got into it just out of basic fascination and then had to construct the research questions and make my way through trying to research the institution from there. In many ways, it's always the best kind of project where your personal interest takes you there and then you discover that there's some kind of interesting academic questions that can be asked in the space. Exactly. Let's turn a little bit to the history of the vaccine court. Some of our listeners may not be that familiar with it. Tell us a little bit more about how it formed and what led to its creation. Well, it's formed by statute. In 1986, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act created a lot of the vaccine safety structures that we have today, as well as this court, to take liability away from the vaccine manufacturers 
it was supposed to be a quick and easy, low controversy administrative proceeding, except they set it up with attorneys and paid the attorneys no matter what the outcome. <laughs> so it wasn't too surprising that it quickly became an adversarial court type of arrangement. But it was originally there to keep the vaccine supply from collapsing when manufacturers were leaving the market. And the particular vaccine they were leaving the market over was the acellular DTP vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis. And it was the acellular pertussis component of the vaccine that was causing some adverse reactions that were quite dramatic and in a few rare cases, extremely devastating. But they were getting a lot of attention and people started winning a few big judgments. Now, and of course, it had all of the unpredictability that we know the tort system has, but we only had a couple of manufacturers and they started just leaving the market because of the uncertainty. And it looked like we would have a collapse of immunity against pertussis because we simply wouldn't have any more vaccines. And so the parents wanted compensation. The doctors, the pediatricians wanted stabilization of the market. Manufacturers wanted to be released from this pressure of liability. And Ronald Reagan kind of liked it because it was tort reform in some way, although he signed it fairly reluctantly. He was afraid this was also creating an entitlement. But you could rope together enough of the groups, the parents, the doctors, the manufacturers, and a president interested in some tort reform. After some back and forth, by no means assured, he signed the legislation in 1986. The history suggests a bit that this is a one-time unique institution. If you think about the characteristics here, you have sympathetic child plaintiffs with a deep-pocketed pharmaceutical company, so you have concerns about tort running amok. You have highly technical material, and then as you said, you have doctors and public health officials worried about serious policy ramifications if the tort system drives the manufacturers from the market. Does this suggest that this truly is a one-time thing, that we might not be able to ever export the idea of the vaccine court to any other area of mass torts? I think so. And in fact, in the book, I explicitly argue against that. And I thought, you know, it would be better for me as an author to be saying, hey, this solution is so wonderful. Let me tell you all about it. It kind of gives you a nice marketing strategy for your ideas. But I really think intellectually, honestly, it, it's too unusual. And I generally support plaintiff's rights to bring lawsuits. So I'm not interested in a lot of medical courts where people don't have the right to sue anymore and things like that. So I really think in the book, I talk about our immunization social order, which is everything that we've secured through immunizations, through law, through policy, through investment. And it's a product that has coercion behind it. And it gives us a special, unique, shared benefit, this freedom from diseases that we all enjoy. I think it is really quite unique. We have comparable types of institutions, the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund or Price Anderson for the nuclear industry, some kinds of things where we've tried to patch up our tort system in response to particular kinds of things. But I do think the ongoing nature of the vaccine program, you know, we need to just keep vaccinating indefinitely. Smallpox is the only disease that we've eradicated. So we've got this kind of long slog of needing to maintain vaccination rates, even though the diseases are more or less pushed back to the margins. Of course, they keep popping up a little bit every now and then, but most people don't notice that. So we need to keep up the vaccinating, keep up the immunity that we all enjoy and the social and political benefits of that. 
but there are going to be rare adverse events that we have to deal with. So I think it is quite unusual and not really exportable. I got a call from Automotive News where they wanted me to, to talk about whether self-driving cars would need some kind of solution like this. And I argued that no, self-driving cars, I think, can be solved within the institutions that we already have. Plus, a lot of major manufacturers have already accepted strict liability for accidents from their self-driving cars. So to me, it was a bit of a, a non-problem. But I think the journalist wrote the article as if it was a great idea anyway. Let me turn to evidence, which is in many ways why we're here. Tell us a little bit about how cases in the vaccine court proceed. As I recall from your book, there's no jury. And as a result, it's a bit more inquisitorial and less adversarial. I sort of say it's inquisitorial and adversarial at the same time, although they're a really interesting hybrid in a lot of ways. So the statute set up eight special masters. They're called special masters, and they serve under the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. That's where you go to sue the U.S. government for money without your Seventh Amendment jury right applying. And you have to go to vaccine court for the vast majority of claims. It's more or less exclusive jurisdiction. So they have to come there. They don't use the federal rules of evidence. They do handle themselves in a very court-like way in many ways in that the parties are represented by attorneys. So there are vaccine plaintiffs attorneys who are paid under the statute, uh, and the experts are paid as well, regardless of the outcome. And they're all paid from the same fund, which is funded by a 75 cent excise tax on every dose of vaccine given in the U.S. So there's a whole bunch of money in there, around three and a half billion dollars with a B. They bring the cases and they go to a special master with the Department of Justice attorneys representing the U.S. government. The Secretary of Health and Human Services is the named defendant. And then the parties will be, the family or individual will be represented by an attorney. But they go through what are called status conferences. They confer, they share their experts, and they're supposed to try to work things out informally. And actually 80% of their compensations end in settlement. So in a way, it's very similar to what we see where there's sort of a judge-driven push for settlement. And then they do have hearings which are closed to the public, no juries. And then in the case that when they have hearings, it's generally because they've got dueling experts. The families or the people bringing the claim have managed to find a credible expert. And that's really their biggest challenge is finding a credible expert because many of their claims are fairly tenuous and it's very difficult to find a, a mainstream credible expert for a lot of their claims. But that's how they can get it into contested territory is bringing forth a credible expert. And then they have a hearing before the special master. You had mentioned that the rules of evidence don't apply. What's your sense on how that changes the proof dynamic at the vaccine court level? And let me just add a little bit more to that. You also mentioned in your book that Fry and Daubert are not applicable because the rules don't apply, but they're still used to inform the determinations. How does that work? Well, probably the biggest thing is nothing gets screened out. Nobody gets screened out and everybody gets paid. For a long time, particularly when all the autism cases were working their way through, you had experts who had been widely discredited elsewhere in the scientific community whose testimony had been blocked by Fry and Daubert in regular federal courts who were regularly appearing before the vaccine court and getting compensated for their time as experts. And actually, with some of them, reasonable expenses can be reimbursed. And actually, after a while, they started saying, actually, it's not reasonable to reimburse for these people anymore. But that took years and years and years. And so nothing is blocked out. They can hear everything, and it is quite literally subsidized. And so what I argue in the book is that this is actually a pretty good way of diffusing dissent and making sure that we give people every possible chance to prove their case and channeling their dissent 
into the production of evidence. You know, I say when you provide this court and you and you have to bring evidence to it, people are forced to try to come up with evidence that meets certain standards. We can see a lot of the controversies about fake journals and what counts as a real study, you know, because of course vaccine critics will say, we've published, you know, hundreds of studies showing that vaccines cause autism. And one might think, how have they managed to publish these things? But of course, there are all kinds of journals that one can get into and you can produce the kind of evidence in this sort of circular fashion. They can file vaccine adverse events reports and then turn around and point to those as evidence that a vaccine injury has occurred, for example. And they can also use the court's own past compensations to try to say, hey, look, you've been compensating for this or that. So doesn't that mean it's a real vaccine injury, converting the legal into the scientific after the fact. So they were able to do all kinds of innovative things with evidence to try to show that vaccines cause autism, for example, which was in the end quite untenable and none of this really worked, but it got an incredibly thorough airing is what I argue in the book because nothing was blocked and their efforts were actually subsidized. And drawing a broader conclusion from that, do I then take it that your view is that perhaps Daubert in civil litigation is a mistake, that because it silences experts that are unpopular or have a minority view, we might be better off with a more inclusive evidentiary regime so that people can air their particular viewpoints and have those viewpoints assessed by the jury, but ultimately declared unfounded? Well, there, the big catch is the jury, right? <laughs> because here you have the eight special masters, which are seeing these folks again and again. So they get repeated exposure, specialization. Now, none of them are scientists. They have JDs, they're attorneys, or in some cases, they had been judges elsewhere in other parts of the judicial system. But they're not scientists, and none of them have any kind of scientific training. But again, you know, they had repeated exposure and specialization on the job that no jury would have. So I do feel like in this case, it was really great to be able to get everything out. But also the really critical thing is the channeling and the diversion and the coaxing of critical and skeptical activists to try to come to the court and prepare their arguments for the court. And of course, they did have cross-examination, which was, for all of its flaws, a really good way of poking holes in people's ideas about causation in their studies. And some of the cross-examination in the omnibus autism proceedings was just devastating, completely devastating. Would a jury have seen that? I don't know, because you can look at the rest of the country and see how widely some of these ideas are still accepted. And the data from social sciences is not very encouraging about getting people to change their minds about things that they've already made their minds up about. So I think that's a really tough one for courts where you're going to be able to get these things in front of juries when the science may be unformed. Another thing the vaccine court does is it uses delay in the cases. The parties can just request a delay if they think a study may be coming out to help them and wait for them, sometimes years. And the petitioners have done that in the hopes that some science might improve for them when they didn't have a very well-based claim. In the book, you mention a bunch of cases called middle ground cases. Are these the ones that you're referring to that the vaccine court uses the delay? There's a very short statute of limitations, only three years. So when a new vaccine comes out, there isn't very much epidemiology on it or anything, but parents may start thinking that it's causing problems. So they're filing claims to get in under the three-year statute of limitations, but there's just virtually no data developed about the vaccines and there's no agreed upon injuries. So this happened with the hepatitis B vaccine, for example, and it's administered one of the shots. The first one is at birth, just a few days after birth in the hospital. So that's 
pretty much guarantees it's going to occur before any problems that any child will develop, right? So that was a popular one for filing, claiming a whole range of injuries that there was just very little evidence about. So a lot of those were delayed for years because of an interest in trying to develop some studies show, of course, it had been through all of the the pre-licensure safety screenings at the FDA, but usually it can take some years for post-licensure epidemiology to come out. And interestingly, those claims now are continuing to be in this middle ground, which I define as when the petitioners can bring forth a credible expert to describe some kind of plausible biological mechanism by which this vaccine might have harmed this person even if epidemiology at the population level doesn't really support it. And the class of cases that this has happened are mostly involving autoimmune diseases and nerve damage disorders, where the cause of those diseases is is unknown or contested. But there is some plausible link to infection processes and maybe parts of the vaccine attacking the nerves and causing nerve damage. So this is conditions like multiple sclerosis, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, transverse mellitus, these kinds of things where if you can get an expert to describe how the vaccine might have harmed this person's nerves, then what they'll do is they will give a stipulation where they don't concede causation from the government side, but they pay the claim anyway. So in your view, is this a good thing? My impression now is that, first of all, these claims would be losers in the tort system. Instead, what you have is the government paying the claim because they're rather uncertain, and this promotes the value of compensation, which is also a tort value. Is this the way to go? I think in the case of vaccines, it is. And again, this is because of the overall political and social importance of maintaining our vaccine system. And also the funds are readily available. When you charge that 75 cents on something like the flu vaccine, which is recommended for use in children, so it gets covered in the program, and there's 130 million doses distributed every year, you're going to have plenty of money. So that's a nice little feature of it. I've talked to some health economists about this, and they say that's also an unusually nice feature, that it has this very clear and easy payment mechanism. So there's plenty of money. There is some uncertainty, and doctors and scientists have criticized the vaccine court for making these payments, saying that they're not scientifically defensible. In fairness to the vaccine court, the statute does say that they're supposed to be as generous as possible while maintaining scientific credibility. In this kind of field, it's pretty impossible to do both of those things at the same time. And they have denied many, many claims, depending on how you count and whether you include the autism claims, all of which were denied. They're coming up on a 50% compensation rate, which actually compared to rates in other countries is pretty good. But of course, you have all the mobilized parents around autism who are very angry at having had their claims rejected. So you still have a lot of volatility in that there are a lot of people who believe vaccines cause a lot of things that the scientific community doesn't agree are actually caused. So those people are still out there and angry. But if you can draw as many people in and compensate them for even this middle ground, then you diffuse a lot of those, you compensate those people, and you make sure that at least the opposition movement is not going to include a lot of much more sympathetic people with much more credible claims. (laughs) Kind of creates a politics that's a little bit more sustainable for the scientific community because anybody who has a plausible claim has been weeded out and compensated. A final question for you, Anna. And it's a question that is a pretty standard one on this show. Where would you like to see future research on the vaccine court or in this sphere generally go? 
Of course, the vaccine court has continued to change since I wrote the book. The book came out in December. And then in March, some regulations came down, which changed some of the things that they would automatically compensate. And it moved some of these middle ground cases like Guillain-Barre syndrome after the flu vaccine into the category of automatically compensated. They have what's called a vaccine injury table, where if a claim and an injury can get onto the table, that means it's automatically compensated because it's assumed to be caused. And so there's a bunch of things that well, several things anyway, that got moved into that. And so the vaccine court is presumably going to start moving a lot more quickly, being less adversarial, and I would predict probably receding even more into obscurity. But it would be really interesting to see how does the institution shift again? It's gone through so many changes and its prominence and the level of controversy that it's been under have really changed over time with autism representing probably the height along with its original founding. And then I wonder if we are heading into a time where it's a little bit quiet, even though it's pretty obscure. But then if there's some kind of vaccine scandal or some evidence comes about for some injury that gets a lot of scientific consensus, that's going to be really quite dramatic. And so people have always talked about individually hyper-susceptible subgroups, people whose genetic background might make them more susceptible to vaccine injury. And with where we're going with genetic research and things like that, if something like that were to start to have traction, then all of a sudden the vaccine court would really jump into prominence again, having to confront those claims, perhaps on the basis of millions of people who had done 23andMe and found out something about their genes, and then they all file a vaccine court. So there could be some really interesting things like that coming up. Well, Anna, I'm delighted to have had you on the show to talk about your terrific new book. Thanks for the opportunity to explore such a fascinating institution. Thank you so much. In addition to teaching evidence, I also teach torts, and every year when I teach torts, the vaccine court invariably comes up. From the standpoint of tort reform, how could it not? Here's an area in which traditional tort litigation, with its unpredictability and high stakes, did in fact threaten the availability of consumer products. In fact, in the vaccine context, it actually threatened the foundation of modern public health practice. And in the end, Congress did what technocrats sometimes dream about. It got rid of the jury, established a specialized court, and funded compensation using a tax. But despite being a fascinating thought experiment that became reality, I'll venture that most of us don't really know how the vaccine court works. And this is where Anna's book plays such a critical role. Anna has probed all the tough questions how the vaccine court approaches the process of proof, how traditional evidence rules, or the lack thereof, influence the proof process, what are the benefits and downsides of specialization, and does this odd administrative tribunal, which lacks many of the traditional trappings of procedural justice, actually achieve greater justice and legitimacy than the conventional jury trial? I appreciated the care and scholarly detail with which Anna handled her topic. She has certainly produced a wonderful resource for future researchers. And despite her firm conviction that the vaccine court is a unicorn, a rarity never to be repeated, I continue to hold out hope that we can learn some lessons from its experience and at least take some of them back to conventional legal proof. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. 
Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandt Center Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers for this episode were Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.